Hello, and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Eleanor Langford, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the week's biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. This week, I'm joined by our political editor, Adam Payne, and political reporter, John Johnson. We'll be unpacking whether Boris Johnson's partygate fine could spell the end to his time in Downing Street. The Prime Minister, his wife Carrie, and the Chancellor, Richie Sunak, were all among the latest wave of fines announced by the Met Police, relating to lockdown-breaking parties in Downing Street and Whitehall. So at the time of recording, Boris and Rishi have not resigned. But just before that news dropped, Adam went to Sunderland to meet with Labour leader Keir Starmer as the party's local election campaigns got into full swing. We'll hear his full chat with Keir in a moment. But Adam, what can you tell us about your day with Keir? Yes, so... It's important to stress that I went to Sunderland on Monday, which was before news of the fines for the PM and Sunak broke. So I went to Sunderland because Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, was there campaigning ahead of next month's local elections. He was there to launch some crime policy. The Labour Party believes that crime is an area, well, a weak spot for the Conservatives after being in power for 12 years. So... He visited a community centre, he met some local volunteers, he had a little wander sort of around the area and spoke to people about their concerns and what they'd like to see, I I guess, a Labour Party do if it was to get into government. And I sat down with Keir Starmer because this month, April 2022, he is celebrating the two-year anniversary of his election as Labour leader. He was elected to succeed Jamie Corbyn in 2020 and in that time he has overseen huge amounts of change to the Labour Party. The Labour Party has been leading the Conservatives in the polls for several weeks now. Of course when he inherited Labour they were a long way behind the Tories in the polls. So the conversation you're about to hear essentially is a chat about those two years, how he assesses his leadership so far and what he believes he has to do to be Labour's seventh Prime Minister when we next have a general election in 2024. I've been determined to change the party because I don't think that you look to the electorate and blame the electorate when you lose an election really badly. You look in the mirror and you change your own party. And I was determined to do that. I'm also determined to win a general election. I didn't come into politics to be in the opposition. Mm. I didn't come into politics to walk around the division lobby time and time again losing votes. I came into politics to change the country for the better, and you only do that by winning elections. So change the party, a mindset of winning elections, and making sure that the priorities of the Labour Party, the priorities of working people up and down the country, because I think we've got too far from those priorities in recent years, and we needed to be absolutely clear that we are on your side, which is the message we're taking into these elections. We are on your side. We take your concerns seriously and we have practical answers to the problems that most people face. That is a mindset, an unshakable mindset that I have. I think, by the way, that there is plenty for everybody in the party to get behind when it comes to changing the party, putting forward the answers that are relevant for most people's lives and the struggles that they have, and winning an election. There's nothing that a member of the Labour Party or supporter of the Labour Party can't get behind in that programme. What would you say to people who argue that you've got a government which is up to its eyeballs in scandal, controversy, is at the centre of a meta-investigation, is overseeing the biggest falling living standards for God knows how long? And with that in mind, 
while Labour is ahead, it perhaps should be further ahead? I'd say we were 27 points behind when I took over as leader of the Labour Party. We're now just ahead. That is a significant progress for the Labour Party. And we have further work to do. I'm focused on the next general election, but very few people fail to see the change we've made in the Labour Party. Very few people fail to see the progress that we've made. We have made that progress. That's a very good thing. And I think going from 27 points behind to being a few points ahead now is significant progress. But, you know, look, I'm not taking any of this for granted. Every single vote has got to be earned. Given what I inherited as leader of the Labour Party, I think we're making solid progress in the right direction. So what's the next step then? Well, the next step is continuing to expose the government for what it is, which is unfit for office. The last six months, I think, have been a sort of charge sheet, if you like, in relation to that. Party Kate, the Owen Patterson affair, the CBI ridiculous speech from the Prime Minister, the failure to deal with cost of living, and now tax hypocrisy when it comes to members of the cabinet. So exposing them as not fit, and at the same time showing that we, the Labour Party, are fit for government. And that's why it's very important for us to put out practical plans and proposals in relation to things like the cost of living crisis. The oil and gas company's windfall tax is an example of us saying, given the situation, what's the problem? The problem is energy prices that have gone through the roof. What's the government's response? A a loan in October, which people have to repay. What's the Labour's alternative? An oil and gas windfall tax on profits that were not expected to be made, but have only been made because the global price is so high. So that's showing starkly the difference between the parties and making this case, which is very important, we're on your side. And one thing I've heard from people in Labour around the Shadow Cabinet is that you encourage your team not to spend too much time worrying what people say on Twitter. Yes. And as you know, Twitter is a place where a lot of left-wing Labour politics plays out where the debates are had. What's the rationale behind that? I want the Labour Party, and we've been doing this, turned inside out. Hmm. So I don't want discussions within the Labour Party where people think that if you win an argument in the Labour Party, you've changed the world. You only change the world by turning yourself inside out and engaging, facing the voters. And everything that we do must be facing the voters. That's why um, I'm not a big fan of Twitter. I'd much rather we spend much less time on Twitter and much more time out engaging with the public where they are in what they're doing. That's why we're here in Sunderland talking to members of the local community here, very worried about vandalism, as you've probably heard earlier on, Mm. and doing something about it, sharing and understanding their concerns and coming up with practical solutions. Twitter is not the place for that. Now, in recent weeks, we've seen the Conservatives deploy what a lot of people agree is some of the stuff we might expect them to to roll out at the next general election, what people describe as culture war issues, whether it's trans people or whether it's resuscitating Brexit debates. I know the PM still talks about the European Medicines Agency, whether it's Oliver Dowden saying how much he dislikes woke people. Is that something you're bracing for? And how do you combat that? What's your plan for taking that on? I think it's a completely different political approach. What the government is doing in that is deliberately choosing campaigns that divide the country, Hmm. divide people, pit one group against another. I'm not interested in the politics of division. I came into Parliament on the same day as Jo Cox. And what she said about we've got more in common absolutely reflects my values and the the values of the Labour Party I lead. I want to find the points across the country that unite us, 
that bring us together. In fact, during the pandemic, we saw this with communities looking out for each other in a way which we hadn't experienced in quite the same way for many, many years. So the government is intent on the politics of division. I'm intent on the politics of unity of bringing people together, bringing out the best in people and helping people to work together to improve the lives of everybody in the country. And with that, your Shadow Attorney General Emily Thornbury was on Nick Ferrari's show last week and she, and she gave what a lot of people said was a really good answer to the trans question. And she essentially accused the government of trying to use a vulnerable group of people to, to score political points. Is that a concern that you have, that the government is weaponising groups of people in order to promote a politics, as you say, of, of division? I, I, I think it is weaponising groups of people, but that's what happens when you divide. That's when you try to pick this group against that group, pitting people against each other. And that's what all of this is about. And my frustration is that if you're the Prime Minister, if you're the government, you should be utterly focused on improving the lives of people across the country. We don't have that. We have a government that's intent on finding points of division and exploiting them and pulling people apart when we should be bringing them together. You've done a number of PMQs now, now over these two years, and one observation I'd make, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that while some politicians go toe-to-toe and there seems to be a level of mutual respect, perhaps even a fondness between them, there seems to be a genuine level of animosity between you and the PM. There's been occasions where, to me, you've looked visibly ticked off for the want of a, a better friend. How, how would you describe your relationship with the PM? Do, do you like him? I've nothing in common with him. And I think that honesty, transparency, accountability in politics and integrity in politics matters. He's the opposite. He thinks that they don't matter. And therefore, there is, we have nothing in common on this. Which is why, in some of those exchanges, been really heated exchanges about whether integrity and honesty in politics matters. The Prime Minister obviously thinks they don't matter and they can leave a mess for somebody else to clear up. I fundamentally disagree with that. Mm. I'm not the sort of person, I would add, that finds it difficult to cross the political divide at all. I've got a number of Tory MPs who I would consider friends and colleagues, but I'm afraid with this Prime Minister I've got absolutely nothing in common because we come at it completely differently. I'm also completely frustrated with the man. If you're Prime Minister, you get a chance that nobody else has got to change the country for the better, to improve the lives of millions of people, and he's not doing it. He's not doing it. And so there's a very deep frustration there that he's not using the post, the role of Prime Minister in the way I think it should be used, which is to improve the lives of millions of people. So come the next election, and obviously you'll have the policy offers of both parties, but would you agree that there is a stark choice facing the public in terms of the personalities of the leaders, i.e. you and the PM? Yes. I think I'm serious. I think the problems the country faces are serious. I think they're capable of being resolved. I think our best days are ahead of us. But it takes you know, a serious politician with serious answers and an absolute determination to change things to take advantage of those opportunities and take our country forward. I'm afraid the Prime Minister is the opposite of that. I don't think politics is, is a branch of the entertainment business. Mm. Do you expect to be going up against him at the next election or do you think the Tories will get rid of him before then? I don't know, and I'll go up against whoever they want to put up against us. I don't mind at all. So Adam spoke to Keir before those Partygate fines dropped. It's, of course, been a very difficult week for Boris Johnson after he got a fixed penalty notice for attending a gathering in Downing Street during lockdown. 
That was alongside his wife, Carrie, and Chancellor Rishi Sunak. They've all since apologised and paid their £50 fine. But both the PM and Sunak have resisted calls from Labour leader Keir Starmer for their resignation. Boris Johnson has said that he attended the event, held to mark his 56th birthday, for just 10 minutes, and that he had no idea doing so would break the coronavirus rules that he had put in place. JJ, do you think that excuse is going to cut it with members of his party? I think it's quite interesting to see the response from Tory MPs. Certainly the mood among the Tory party is less febrile than it was when the allegations first came out. And it was interesting yesterday, I think, to see the cabinet taking their time before coming out and backing the prime minister. Many of them seem to be waiting for his comments before they rode in behind him, but generally they have. One of the the things to note, I think, has been that some of the, the MPs who were the most critical of him the first time round were some of the first out the gates to now say, actually, I think this is the time to back the prime minister. Lots of them talking about Ukraine as a reason for that. And I think that kind of set the tone. You know, we saw Douglas Ross, the Scottish Conservative leader, who previously said that the prime minister being fined would be a red card. You know, he's now saying that he backs the prime minister at the moment. We had Tory MP Roger Gale, again, very critical, also coming out and kind of giving his support there. So I think the mood in the Tory party is certainly less febrile than it was when this first came out, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the local elections. I think that's going to be a, a pretty big crunch point for you know further questions about his, his leadership. Yeah, Adam, there were some suggestions yesterday that one of the reasons why some MPs could be holding back is because there isn't an obvious candidate to replace Boris Johnson. Rishi Sunak was a lot of people's favourites, but he has just been fined. He's also, as we spoke about last week, had problems with his previous tax affairs and um, his US green card. That's caused him a lot of backlash. So he's out the running, some would say. And other than maybe Liz Truss, there's no one to replace him. Do you think that's on a lot of MPs' minds? Yes. And in my view, I think that's a a bigger factor for Tory MPs and perhaps they're letting on. As you said, the the line you get from Tory MPs is, you know, it'd be foolish and reckless and unwise to change a prime minister in the middle of a European war. I mean, there is, of course, historical precedent for a prime minister being changed during a time of crisis, but nevertheless. But I do think the fact that there isn't, in my view, at least anything close to an agreed alternative is certainly one of the reasons why the PM is still there and why when we got this news on Tuesday, why we didn't have this huge sort of groundswell of outrage like we did earlier in the year. What I would say as well is that because we're thinking, when we're thinking about Partygate in this story, we are thinking from day to day. But you look at the long-term damage this could do to the Prime Minister. He might be safe for the next few weeks, perhaps even the next few months. But Tory MPs who've spoken to politics home and have spoken elsewhere have said that there are people on the doorsteps who say they will not vote for this party, this Conservative Party, at the next election if it is led by Boris Johnson. And of course, we had two pollsters on the podcast last week, Sir John Curtis and Chris Curtis, who said that the long-term damage both to the PM's reputation and the party's reputation is massive and in some ways could be irreparable. And obviously now all eyes are looking towards 2024, particularly the Labour Party. You spoke to Keir before all this happened. But Labour yesterday was really trying to fill that vacuum left by the MPs saying nothing. John, do you think their response has cut through at all? Or do you think it's make landing? When they were talking yesterday about recalling Parliament, that felt slightly like a bit of a grab to try and get some headlines. I don't think anybody realistically believed that they were going to recall 
Parliament with one day left in the week and obviously Parliament is back next Tuesday. For Labour, I think that's that's probably a gift because they're going to have a weekend of pretty bad headlines, I'd imagine, for the Prime Minister and the government. And then when Parliament returns on Tuesday, this will inevitably be brought up again. And one of the, the things to note is that the police investigation is not finished. Boris Johnson could be fined again. From what we can tell, the police investigation is working through these parties, these gatherings in chronological order. So it's completely feasible that the Prime Minister could be hit with another fixed penalty notice. And that's going to be a very difficult position for them. The Cabinet, as we said, have all been out tweeting their support for Boris Johnson. I mean, how many times are they going to be able to redraft the same words of support if he gets hit with further fines? So I don't think this is over by a long shot. And I think, you know, Labour will be delighted that this is happening just weeks before the local elections. Yeah, I completely agree with John. And what I'd add to that as well is that if we've learned anything from this last few months is that the narrative can shift quickly. At the moment, as you said, Ellie, at the beginning of this episode of the podcast, there are attempts to downplay the significance of the PM's fixed penalty notice, i.e. he was only there for five to ten minutes. He didn't realise he was breaking the rules. However, if more fixed penalty notices start to roll in, then if you add to that potentially the Tories not doing particularly well at the local elections, then Sue Gray, do you remember her? If she reports at the same time, and that makes damning reading for the Prime Minister, I think he could enter a different territory, a territory perhaps something closer to what we saw earlier in the year where it looked like, it felt like MPs could have got rid of him at any minute. So his future is definitely uncertain, but someone whose future is maybe a bit more shaky is, is Rishi Sunak. I mentioned before his tax affairs have got him in some hot water. And he was not happy to be getting this fine yesterday. One MP put it to me, you know, this is a workaholic teetotal chancellor who has just been fined for partying. He's, he's absolutely furious by all accounts and very embarrassed. And there was talks of resignation yesterday. Obviously, he's still in the post, but he could also be part of future fines or he could maybe feel that the position is untenable. Do you think that his position is, is rocky? Do you think we could be saying goodbye to Rishi Sunak? I think it was really interesting. Obviously, as we said, we're recording this just the day after the, the fines came out, but it was intriguing to see how long it took Rishi Sunak to respond. A lot of commentators were were pointing out, you know, maybe he's having a bit of a wobble. He has had an incredibly tough week with all of the stories about his family's tax affairs. And then, as you said, I think this feeling that he's been quite hard done by in getting dragged into this. Obviously, at the moment, his position seems to be that he's going to stay but, you know, he might find himself in an increasingly difficult position if the government are hit with other fines, if possibly he's hit with other fines and he really feels that this is not a fair situation he's been put in. That might cause him to sort of maybe consider whether this is all worth it or whether he should just pack it in and take another option. And we have had people who work with Rishi Sunak often described as allies in political journalism, suggesting that, you know, politics isn't for him in the long run, might fancy a career change, maybe move back stateside. And if you've got people around you briefing that, then it doesn't exactly communicate the sense that you're happy in, in your position, that you're going to be there for a number of years. Even before stories of his tax arrangements and green card broke, there was talk of Johnson moving him in the next reshuffle because of disagreements between the pair. As things stand, it certainly doesn't feel like Rishi Sunak's going to be there for several more years. And that could be incredibly damaging because the Chancellor holds such a powerful position. If he was to decide to resign, you know, even if he made a point of not pushing any blame onto the Prime Minister, 
I think it'd be a pretty fatal blow for Boris Johnson to lose somebody uh, under the current circumstances. If Rishi decides to go, then that could trigger big changes in how the rest of the, the cabinet and the government and the party feel about Boris Johnson's ability to continue leading them. I think there's certainly a feeling that Boris Johnson is slightly on borrowed time, that the Ukraine crisis has, fortunately for him, bought him a bit of breathing space. But I don't think there is a, a kind of widespread feeling within the party that he will be leading them into the next general election. I just want to quickly touch on the May elections because obviously that is a couple of weeks away and that could be really bad news for, for Boris Johnson and, and his party. Well, we obviously, we heard from pollsters last week. Adam, how, how do you think this could all play out on, on the doorstep for this, this party gate business? Well, I guess there are two elements to that, Ellie. Firstly, it's clear in the polling that Partygate did huge damage to the Conservative Party's ratings and continues to do huge damage while the PM might survive the next few weeks, there's a real risk for the MPs who are defending him, I think, of essentially defending a PM who's going to take you into the next election and potentially lose it. However, how will that play out of the local elections? Well, for anyone who listened to our episode last week with Sir John Curtis and Chris Curtis, and those who haven't, I'd highly recommend you do. What they said was that due to what's actually up for grabs on May the 5th in England, the scope for a bad night for the Conservatives isn't actually that large. You've got a couple of boroughs in London, which the Tories could lose. But elsewhere in England, and we could talk about Scotland in a sec, but elsewhere in England, um, there isn't really that much that Labour can gain from the Conservatives. And when I spoke to Keir Starmer and asked about local elections, he was very much managing expectations and said it's going to be difficult for Labour to evidence gains on May the 5th. And personally, he's measuring success by how Labour perform in relation to the 2019 general election. Now, of course, the Tories could potentially have a very bad night in Scotland, where they've been second since 2016. They could be leap, le- leapfrogged, leapfrogged. Leapfrogged. They could be leapfrogged by Anasawa's Labour into second place. So my hunch, Ellie, is that although the Tories could perform not very well on May the 5th, I don't think we're going to see this sort of disaster narrative. I think the next morning you'll have Tory ministers on the airwaves saying, oh, you know, it's been not too bad, actually. We've, we've picked up here and there in the so-called Red Wall. We've kept hold of these London boroughs etc. So I think it's doing huge damage to the Tories in the polls. Whether this means disaster on May the 5th, I'm not convinced. And that puts Labour into a very difficult position, I think, because, you know, we've, we've had all of these scandals, we've had all of these really bad headlines for the government, for the Prime Minister, and it, it kind of sets up this narrative for the local elections where if they have an OK set of results, if it isn't disastrous, which given the, the kind of seats that are up for, it would be quite hard for it to be an absolute whitewash. That puts Labour in a, in a difficult position because, you know, they're putting out ads calling the Prime Minister, saying that he's broken the law. If they don't perform really well, then that kind of reflects quite badly on Keir Starmer and, you know, will give ammunition to those within his party who are not happy with his leadership, you know, more to say, well, if you can't cut through in this kind of situation with this kind of headlines for the Prime Minister, what's your strategy? Where are we going wrong here? And the flip side to that as well is that if we wake up on May the 6th and it hasn't been an absolute disaster for the Tories, you can bet that those MPs who are looking for an excuse to defend the PM will say, oh, it wasn't too bad. We got through that, guys. And if they use the May 5th results as further justification for keeping the PM 
in place, perhaps even into the next election, then, as I said earlier, that could backfire for them as well if they go on to lose that 2024 election. On that, one thing that happened this week that I think could be quite an interesting test for Labour is the Conservative MP Imran Ahmad Khan was found guilty of sexual assault. So he's been expelled from the party, lost the whip, and it's highly likely that there will be a by-election in this case. Obviously, nothing's been confirmed yet. At the time of recording, he is still an MP, but a by-election is looking likely. Now, he won that seat from Labour in 2019, and Labour are obviously going to want to try and get that back and they have an, an open goal, really, to try, try and get it. So if they don't do incredibly well there, you've got to really question that if they can't do well in a, in a seat like that, where can they do well? I think the Tory majority is just over 3,000 yeah. in Wakefield. And if you are Keir Starmer in Labour and you're looking at the electoral map ahead of a general election and thinking, where, where do we really need to be winning if we're going to win the next election? I think Wakefield is very much on that list. And I agree, I think there will be pressure on Keir Starmer to win that seat. I think people often get sort of bogged down in, in the details of like, you know, how big's the Labour majority? If Labour don't win this by, I don't know, five or six, seven thousand majority, that'll be a bad result. But I just think he's down, we'll just want the win there. Yeah. Just win back Wakefield. And I think symbolically, you know, he could say, oh, look, we're, we're sort of reclaiming <laughs> the red wall, albeit brick by brick. So I, I, th- I think you're right, Ellie. I think if when we do have a by-election there, it will be a very important and significant test of... Keir Starmer's leadership now he's been at the helm for two years. That's all we've got time for this week but you can read more on all the biggest political stories at politicshome.com and by subscribing to our newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right corner of our website. Thank you so much to our fantastic guests Keir Starmer, to our political editor Adam Payne and political reporter John Johnston. Our editor has been Laura Silver. You can follow them all on at Adam Payne 26, at John Johnston MI and at Laura Silver underscore. And I'm on at Eleanor Mia. Thank you for listening and please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a lovely bank holiday weekend and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Eleanor Langford and this has been The Rundown.